All right, folks, stop me if you've heard this one. William Shakespeare, Henry V, Act Four, famous speech. The king is there with the soldiers. They're vastly outnumbered by the French forces. One of the soldiers has just said he wished there were more there to fight with them. And the king stops him, and he goes into this famous speech. Here are the end, here's the end of it. This story shall the good man teach his son. And Crispian, and Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, be he ne'er so vile. This day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap whilst any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's day. If you were anything like my wife, you just got horribly embarrassed for me, and I just want to tell you, I get that. I understand that. Um, however, if you were moved by that performance, I want to invite you to text the Tony Awards. Um, Broadway's not going right now, so there's a chance I could win some award for that performance. But it's one of the most famous speeches in Shakespeare. It's a, it's a rousing uh, you know, sort of call to courage, a, a you know, what could we do in this moment if we press in together? Uh, how about this one? On November 19th, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln, after the featured speaker of the day at Gettysburg, who was a great orator of, at the, of the time, had spoken for two hours, uh, Lincoln stood up and began, Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. The famous words of the Gettysburg Address. Lincoln was saying that the dead at Gettysburg had laid down their lives for this noble cause. He said it was up to those living to confront the great task before them, ensuring that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. The speech itself was less than 275 words. It lasted uh, less than two minutes uh, and yet was profoundly effective. Uh, please, please do not email me about sermon length based on that. I'll give you one more. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., four days uh, after Rosa Parks had taken her stand in Montgomery on the bus in Alabama, he shared these words in his remarks to those who were present. Here's the end uh, of his speech, or it's, it's near the end. We are not wrong. We are not wrong in what we are doing. If we are wrong, the Supreme Court of this nation is wrong. If we are wrong, the Constitution of the United States is wrong. If we are wrong, God Almighty is wrong. If we are wrong, Jesus of Nazareth was merely a utopian dreamer that never came down to earth. If we are wrong, justice is a lie. Love has no meaning, and we are determined here in Montgomery to work and fight until justice runs down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. I want to say that in all our actions we must stick together. Unity is the great need of the hour, and if we are united we can get many of the things we not only desire, but which we justly deserve. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Abraham Lincoln, uh, fictional words from Shakespeare, I hope you'll forgive me for uh, my feeble attempt at giving life to those words. But there's something that we 
know intuitively, it's something that we know from our experience, that there are moments so crucial that the right words have to be supplied. We need them to make sense of the moment, to prepare us when essential actions must be taken. In each of these speeches, whether the fictional or the very soberly real, uh, each of these were words that were used to prepare and equip those who were hearing with perspective, motivation, and united intent. In moments they were about to face that were going to be immensely difficult and were, were going to require much of them. Jesus on the night he was betrayed, gave an extended address to some of his closest followers. And I want to get our minds moving in that direction. This is a moment where Jesus knows he's about to be betrayed and arrested. He knows he's about to give his life. He knows that those he's speaking to are going to be scattered. Uh, He knows they're going to be those um, also who carry the movement of the kingdom of God forward in a significant way. These are going to be the first people who live the Jesus way in the world. These are going to be the first to invite others to believe the gospel, to to know God, to be filled with the Spirit, to live the life of the kingdom of God. And you can find this this, address that Jesus gives in the Gospel of John in chapters 14 to 16, and you need to read it in that light. This is on the eve of his arrest and betrayal and going to the cross, on the eve of these disciples being scattered. The chapters themselves are full of some of the most famous words Jesus ever spoke. We could actually spend a lifetime in them and still be learning and growing. Uh, we, we very well may in the future have a, have, a, have a series that stretches weeks or months where we slowly work our way through these chapters and wring out as much as we can. But for today, I want to invite you to read this section of scripture as an extended address and conversation. These are the things in John 14 to 16 that Jesus wanted his disciples to know, his his friends to know before he had to leave them and before they had to pass through the most challenging point of their their lives up to that that moment. I want want to invite you to read this address from Jesus. It's uh, it's sometimes called the farewell uh, discourse or the upper room uh, address or upper room discourse. So I want you to actually do do that, to read the address. So if you happen to be listening on your own, I want to encourage you to read it aloud. Um, if you're with other people or on a Zoom call or a Google Hangout, uh, I encourage you to break it up and let a few readers read. Um, the simplest way, maybe pick, uh, pick three readers and, and let each of them do a chapter, but um, you can feel free to break it up however you like. Um, if it helps, I'll be reading from the NIV as I make some comments in just a few minutes. So I actually want you to pause the sermon here. Take the five minutes or so that it takes to read through John 14 to 16 out loud or on your own uh, with those you're gathering, even if it's online, and then we'll pick back up.
When you know what's at stake and when you know that Jesus knows what they are about to face, what's going to be their calling and responsibility going forward, it gives these words the weight they deserve. Uh, We aren't going to get anywhere near covering all that is in them uh, in these three chapters in the next couple of minutes, but I want you to hold on to these as a unique lifeline in the days ahead. I just encourage you, read these chapters every day this week or or every week for the next couple of months. You might want to take a section of it and memorize it. When, when do we not need to hear, do not let your hearts be troubled or, um, or that Jesus has overcome you know, the, the challenges of the world that we're facing. So just in these uh, few minutes, we're going to look at a few of the words that are repeated throughout the address that you just read, throughout the conversation. And I think that something Jesus bothers to repeat in a moment like this must be vital. Uh, so here's just a couple of things that he mentions multiple times. The first I just said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Of course, we are going to face trouble. That's promised in in the address itself. But do not allow your hearts to live in that place. Do not allow your hearts to linger in that place. Speak to yourself. Preach to your soul. Hear encouragement from other people. Hear encouragement from Jesus. This is how the address begins. Do not let your hearts be troubled. He says to the disciples, you believe in Yahweh, the God of your father and and mothers believe also in me. And right away, this sparks some questions for them. Jesus is saying, I want you to come with me where I'm going. And and they're saying, how can we know where you're going? And and, and can you show us the father? And Jesus sort of gets disappointed. Like, don't you understand that uh, I am in the father and the father is in me? And quite frankly, they they don't get it. They don't grasp the Trinity. And and we can have a lot of grace for them because they are not alone. It is a a challenging idea to get our heads around a God who is three in one, who is is hero Israel, the Lord your God is one, and yet his father's on Holy Spirit. They don't understand all that Jesus means by that, uh, but he seems to be indicating that their life is bound up with his, his life is bound up with the Father. And in spite of them not getting it, Jesus doesn't say, okay, well, don't worry about that. Let me move on to something else. He, he, he doubles down. He presses in. He, he, he says there are profound implications for understanding the nature of God this way. This reality is essential. And a couple of things Jesus sort of calls out because the reality of Father, Son, Holy Spirit is that there is a unique invitation for participation that comes to us in the gospel. Um, They are being told, we are being told that we are going to be brought all the way in. We are being brought into the life of God. Jesus is going to pray this exact thing for us after this conversation. He's going to pray in John 17 that we would have a share in what the Father, Son, and Spirit have had from the very beginning. Uh, and, and this is how he puts it in John 14. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. We have a share in the life of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That, that's participation in a unique way because of the nature of God. This has implications not just for our participation, but also how, how we pray. Uh, all through these chapters, Jesus keeps saying, what we ask in the, in the name of Jesus, what we ask the Father of, uh, we are going to receive. Uh, John 14, 13, he says, I will do whatever you ask in my name. John 15, 16 restates the exact same idea. By the end of the address, John 16, in that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. 
complete. So we get to participate in the life of Trinity. This means something for, for how we pray, for how we bring God's love and power and kindness and compassion to bear on, on the world. We learn to pray in Jesus' name, pray in the flow with the Trinity. N.T. Wright uh, has some helpful words that I came across this week about this idea of praying in Jesus' name. Listen to this. The all-important phrase, in my name, doesn't, of course, mean just adding in the name of Jesus to anything we might think of, however stupid, selfish, or hurtful. The name, after all, as in many cultures, is supposed to reveal the character. Praying in Jesus' name, then, means that as we get to know who Jesus is, so we find ourselves drawn into his life and love and sense of purpose, we will then begin uh, to see what needs doing and what we should be aiming at within our sphere of possibilities and what resources we need to do it. We, uh, when we then ask, it will be in Jesus' name and to his glory and through that to the glory of the Father himself. But when all of this is understood, we shouldn't go soft on the marvelous word anything. He said it and he means it, that anything we ask that is in Jesus' name, we should have an expectation of receiving from from God because we have a share in God's life. We are going to be those who pray boldly and expectantly in Jesus' name. And also the Trinity means for us, Jesus seems to say, it means for us peace. It means an an access point for shalom in our lives and in the world in a unique way. The address, uh, this crucial address, keep that in mind, begins and ends with a call to peace. It starts with, do not let your hearts be troubled. And the last of verse 16 says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus seems to be saying that our peace is not some flimsy sentiment. It is rooted in the very stuff of God's character and integrity. This, this gospel, this moment in, in John's gospel is revealing the truth of the inner life of God that we are invited into. How Father, Son, and Holy Spirit love one another and how we get brought into that, that what C.S. Lewis calls the dance of that love. So do not let your hearts be troubled. Another repeated moment in this conversation is the connection between love and obedience, between love and keeping God's word and instruction. In a sense, uh, this, this uh, address calls out that love is our motivation and command. John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commands. John 14, 19, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. John 15, 16, and 17, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. And they're like, okay, what are your commands? And he says, love. love. Uh, he, he keeps putting uh, putting love into the realm of action. Uh, he, he keeps saying that, that our motivation for our life of connection with him is one, one, of, one of love. And, and his actual commands are love. Now, this is really important because fear or shame or, or, or guilt, uh, they might be enough for temporary life change for us. And, and many of us know what, what making changes in our life based on those motivations feel like and it, it is like. We, we, uh, fear or, or guilt or shame might be enough to spur a confession or spur an apology or spur a New Year's resolution. But love is what leads to a life of over and over again reorienting around God. Um, this is what we mean when we say repent. 
repentance. It is a reorientation of our life around love. It is, it is, it is moving away from those inferior fuels for change, fear, shame, and guilt, and, and placing it firmly in, in love. Some of us know so well the cycle of, I tried hard, I got fatigued and worn out, I failed in some way, I said I was sorry, and then I repeated the cycle, and we're sort of going off of these lesser motivations. That cycle can run on fear. That cycle can run on guilt. But Jesus is saying... Um, a call for us to reorient our lives around this participation we have with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and to be those who are living on love as our motivation and living with love as our, our commands. And that, that means trusting that God loves us enough to keep his promises, to, to meet the deep needs of our soul. I had a friend uh, who was telling me about the, a process of, of, of going through recovery and, and, uh, and one of the important parts of that journey was making amends to those um, that they had wronged in, in, in the process of their addiction and struggle. And, and you actually see this in, in, in the New Testament and in a couple of places like Zacchaeus, who after Jesus transforms his life, he wants to make amends. He wants not just to say he was sorry, but to, to make things right. And we were discussing the difference between saying you're sorry and making an amendment to your life, making an actual reorienting change. And he was saying like, you know, at different points in history, like say the women's suffrage movement, you know, like there's this fight for the right to vote. And the end result of that, that struggle, it would not have been appropriate to say, Here, here's what you're asking for. We're sorry that you were not able to vote. We apologize. And if that was it, that would certainly be insufficient. No, it wasn't enough to say, I'm sorry, or we're sorry collectively. There, an amendment had to be made to the actual Constitution so that the right to vote would be forever established. And the same thing uh, is true for us, that we, we don't just come to that, the end of that cycle of trying hard and, and getting fatigued and then failing and then saying we're sorry and then going right back in. No, we're trying to reorient over here to this place of love and say, through participation in the life of God, I want to live on the fuel of God's love on a daily basis, being nourished by his word. And I'm going to reorient. I want to make an amendment to my behavior, an amendment to my motivation based on love. So love is our motivation and command. So we couple that with do not let your hearts be troubled. Jesus says uh, several times, uh, if you love me, walk in this, in this particular way. Another thing that he repeats in this, uh, in this discourse is uh, repeated calls to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to come. And the Holy Spirit is our helper, comforter, and advocate. I won't say much more on this because Pentecost is on the way. And, and, and we talk so much about uh, the essential life of the Holy Spirit flowing through us as our way of connecting with, with God and living the way of Jesus and, and the kingdom of God. But just in this address, when you don't know what to do... <laughs> as the disciples don't know what to do. Uh, the Holy Spirit will, will guide you. The Holy Spirit will lift up the way of Jesus, will help us know what that way of love looks like in that particular moment. You can ask for help. The Holy Spirit, uh, when you don't know what to do, when you cannot escape the pain, when you have no say whatsoever on when the, uh, the quarantine is going to be over or when the difficulty that you're facing is going to end or when the sick family member is going gonna, is gonna to have some clear results, when, when you have no way to control the end result of the struggle that you're in, the Holy Spirit is our comfort. And I just want you to think about what that feels like to be so tense, to be so frustrated, to be so angry, to be in such grief, and then to have something come in that ministers comfort to you, the embrace of a friend, a song heard at the right moment remembering a promise from God and suddenly like that tension melting away to such a gift that the Holy Spirit is our comfort. 
when you don't know what to do, when you can't escape the pain, when you failed, right? We, we know these disciples are going to make some spectacular failures right outside of this meeting that they're in. They're going to scatter away from Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the one that applies the victory of Christ to our life, that says, um, you, your sins are put as far as the east is from the west. You are healed, you are forgiven, you are loved. And everywhere in between, the only way uh, that Jesus can mean that we are going to do greater things than what he did when he was walking around in his three-year public ministry is that we're going to be filled with this Holy Spirit. Jesus seems mind-blowingly to say that it is a good thing he's going to leave. And the disciples are like, can't be, please don't, stay with us. And he says, no, I'm going to go and the, and the Spirit is going to come and the Spirit is going to be your helper your comforter, your advocate, your guide is going to direct you, is going to nurture you, is going to, is going to sustain you, is going to be with you in quarantine, is going to be with you when you wash your hands, is going to be with you when you're trying to become a homeschool headmaster after uh, you know, being something else for all, all, all the previous uh, parts of your life. So the, the last one that I want to call our attention to uh, for our time today is that Jesus says several times that he's speaking these things, that he's communicating these things so that we would have joy. And that he even says this phrase that our joy would be complete. And I just want you to take a deep breath and think about that. The fact that God wants you to know joy that is complete. I think it's different than just circumstantial happiness that, that all of the circumstances in our life are, are perfect. It can't mean just that. There's something about the deeper river of joy that comes from our connection, our participation in the life of the Trinity and the life of the, the kingdom of God. There's people from every tribe and tongue and nation who become our family by the blood of Jesus. But I just want to say prophetically to, to you, Trinity Grace Church family, uh, in the past few years and, and all the, uh, the previous difficulties that we've experienced, God has spoken something to us. Uh, I, I believe it's particular for our church, um, and maybe it's true for all believers, but I know God wanted to apply this word to us, that it's, it was true of Jesus that he was a man acquainted with sorrow, uh, but he is also a man anointed with joy. And I believe that twofold calling is particular for our church. We are going to be those who are acquainted with sorrow. We're not shocked at bad news. Um, or even if we are shocked, we, we, we know kind of that we can expect that type of thing in the world. We know how to move into places of pain, to sit in hospital rooms with our friends, to sit in moments of grief, to sit in moments of uncertainty, even if it's over Zoom calls, to, to become acquainted with one another's sorrow so that we're bearing each other's burdens in the difficulty of the world, but we are also those. And don't be afraid, don't be ashamed of this reality that our, our, we are called to be anointed with joy. We are united with Christ in this way. Even in quarantine, this is our inheritance as sons and daughters, uh, as a Trinity Grace Church family. We are those who are acquainted with sorrow and anointed with joy. So I want to invite you to soak in these words, in this final discourse that Jesus has given his disciples. Uh, they, are, they are words particularly built for hardship times of life. Uh, there's sort of a divine conspiracy going on, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit pouring their life into us and, and, and showing us these particular access points. But there's also human limitation in it. And I want you just to rest and know that God knows your limitations. Even when he's talking to the disciples here, he says, hey, there's stuff I want to get into with you, but it's more than you can bear. And, and that's okay. And let's go on to the next place. And um, 
we know that uh, we're not going to get everything that's in here in, 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 one, in one message, in one sermon, in one discussion. But I think it's worth going back to those words that are repeated in this upper room discourse. Do not let your hearts be troubled, for you are united to the life of God. Pray that way. Press into peace that way. Love is your command, and love is your reason for following Jesus' commands. You aren't alone. You have the Holy Spirit. This, this joy complete stuff, whatever that means, it came in a world where the cross was, was the next big part of the story. So uh, we know that it works in places of sickness. It, it works in places where we're scattered. It works in places where our hopes you know, feel like they're being dashed on a daily basis, that you can still have joy and that there's a level of completeness to it that we can press in. So let's keep believing these things together. Uh, let's meditate on these words over the coming days. Let's take sections of it and memorize it. Let's teach it to our kids and songs. Let's hold on to these things. Let me pray for you. And I hope the peace of Christ will be with you richly, that you will not let your hearts be troubled, that you remember that Christ has overcome the world, and that you'll take care of each other and pray for each other. Holy Spirit, will you pour into the places where this is being heard right now? Will you embrace your sons and daughters with your immense love right now? You have said you want us to have joy and to have it to the full. I pray that even a lift, a lightness, a, a sense of, of, of nearness with you would, would invade the places where people are hearing this and they would just sense your, your, your kindness and your mercy and your embrace, God. Lift us up, show us the way, be our comforter, our helper, our advocate. We need your help. Lift up Jesus in our midst. Help us to... Um, to take care of those around us. We pray in the name of Jesus that you would roll back this disease and this sickness and that you would pour out mercy and pour out healing on our world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Trinity Grace Church family. We love you so much.